fiends. Ice to see you. Things are getting strange and we're starting to worry, so this could be an X-Files case for Luke and myself. The case was opened on June 30th, 2021 and concerns nodules. Lots of nodules. And definitely not a rip-off of a certain iconic horror film in their remake. Oh no. Nodules. So prepare to be earwormed by episode 8 of the X-Files debut season, Ice. Greetings and welcome to the Pod Rig. This is Under Consultation Extra, a patron exclusive podcast guide through the licorice all sorts of 90s TV. I am one of your hosts, Luke Cohen, and I believe the truth is out there. And I am Ash, spooky versus, and before anyone passes judgment, may I remind you, we are in the Arctic. This episode aired on the 10th of November 1994. Paddo Banton's baby whoa, whoa, comeback. Whoa, 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 hold it there, Taylor Swift. I'm going to Kanye <laughs> you a bit because we are going to get to the 10th of November very, very soon over on the main timeline. So I know it's a baby comeback is the number one song. And I know that the film is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I'm looking forward to talking about that with you. So let's not retread ground we haven't yet trodden. Yeah, OK, I'll go with that. It is the X-Files, after all. It is indeed the X-Files. So let's talk about something else. Let's talk about a different song. What song should we talk about, Luke? I mean, we could talk about Catatonia, Smulder and Scully, I reckon. What year did that come out? It was released in January 1998, originally intended for 1997, but there were some complications that stopped that happening, possibly 20th Century Fox going, hey, hang on a second. But no, it's from their album International Velvet. And yeah, the song is called Mulder and Scully. It makes direct reference to the FBI very special agents, Fox Mulder and Dana Scully. And Ceres Matthews does not give two shits about the X-Files. No, it never really felt like an X-Files song. Like, I know it's called Mulder and Scully and everything, but it never really felt like it was a song about the X-Files. It more just felt that... It is in the pop culture zeitgeist, so it, let's make reference to it. Um, Ceres Matthews basically said that um, the conceit of the song 
was about asking Mulder and Scully to figure out this thing called love. Hey, I mean, it is the biggest mystery out there. Yeah, and she admitted she's not a fan of the show, but she only used the line because it adequately described the type of relationship she was singing about. Uh, She did an interview where she said, I'm not a big fan, but I got the line about things getting strange for Mulder and Scully from watching the odd episodes, and said that she would prefer to go out for a night on the town with Gazza and Chris Evans than meet Gillian Anderson or David Duchovny. And she finished by saying, I'm sure loads of people bought the record by mistake, but who cares? They should be flattered we wrote a song about the X-Files anyway. (laughs) That's very ballsy of her. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind it, to be honest. I quite like the candour of it all, really. Same. I'm a big actual fan of Catatonia in general. They had some absolute banging singles, some of the album tracks less so, but this ballad of Tom Jones, Road Rage, From the Waist Down... She got to sing with Tom Jones as well on his Reload album. I I was going to say, that's my favourite, that's my reason I love that song. For, you know, I know there's a lot of people who think the song is problematic, but I love that version of it just for Keris Matthews at the end going, bloody freezing, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It was their first song in America as well and did remarkably well there, I suspect because of the X-Files connotation. Over here, it got big up playback on the BBC. I mean, I first heard it on Radio 1 and it was played a lot. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I had this on a Now album. And it was, yeah, and like it is so unsurprising that this did incredibly well over in the US because, like you say, I would imagine a lot of people thought it was an official X Files song. There was a another X Files song I seem to remember that was also on a Now album that it might have been like a remix of the X Files theme. Oh, there was. There was a couple of X-Files remixes yeah. that came out. There was a Mark Snow version that did just get released as a single and charted. Then there was DJ Dado did a mix. Maybe that's... Yeah, I mean, I was going to say Paul Oakenfold, but I think Paul Oakenfold, the one I'm thinking of, was the James Bond one he did. Possibly. Yeah. The other big issue you had is at the same time that Mark Snow's version was released, I think it was Mark Snow's version, uh, Robert Miles' Children was also yes! in the charts. That's uh, right. When you listen to them back to back, there is a certain similarity to them in that they are instrumental tracks. Although Robert Miles' Children, definitely a dance song. The X-Files, it's not. I think the the great thing about the X-Files theme song is that a lot like The Twilight Zone, I think more people know what the song is. Like if you were to just do the song, if you go like, it's the same way as going, people know exactly where you're trying to get to, even if they've never seen the show. Definitely. I think X-Files is one of those shows that has absolutely surpassed its genre and entered into the general public lexicon. It's like Doctor Who and Star Trek, you know, There are people that have never watched an episode of Doctor Who, but they'll see a pepper pot and go, oh, Dalek. There's people that have never watched an episode of Star Trek, but will still go, beam me up, Scotty. Oh, yeah. He's dead, Jim. Exactly, yeah. I am that Doctor Who guy. I've barely seen an episode of Doctor Who, but I know what the theme tune is, and I know what a Dalek is, I know what a Cyberman is, because they're just there in the pop culture world. One last note about Mulder and Scully, the song that is... There was a music video. It featured the band playing the song and on a tour bus and two lookalikes for Mulder and Scully. It also featured a pre-Notting Hill Reese Evans. Really? Yeah, a year before his big breakout role, he featured prominently in the music video. 
I don't think I've seen the music video for the song probably like you know when it was shown on top of the pops probably would have been the last time that I'd seen it uh I watched it like probably last week because I was preparing for this and I'm just like oh this is this is a lot of fun and then I watched a bunch of other catatonia music videos on YouTube it was played a lot during the 90s in fact around the time of its release it was being played 30 to 35 times a week in the UK and there weren't that many music channels back then I have um so I've got my 90s classics playlist and Catatonia's Mulder and Scully along with Road Rage uh, were very quick to get added to that playlist. So like when I thought about doing this I was like well those are two tracks I know that are definitely going on there. There was like a bunch of there was like 10 or 20 tracks that were like these are instant ads uh, and the, yeah those two tracks were amongst those 20. Are you familiar with the so-called X-Files? Someone's investigating the unknown. Do you believe in the existence of extraterrestrials? She's skeptical. Logically, I would have to say no. But together... This isn't official procedure. They're heading for a double-cross. It's happening again, isn't it? I see no evidence that justifies the legitimacy of these investigations. Seal this up. Right now, nobody sees or touches this. Nobody! I'm going to die, aren't I? What is going on here? They're coming back. David Duchovny is Spooky Mulder. This thing exists. Gillian Anderson is Dana Scully. Agent Mulder believes we are not alone. The X-Files, starting Monday, 19th of September on BBC Two. So we thought we would do an episode of The X-Files because we have now reached it in our timeline. We got to the first episode of Series 4 and the day before the first episode of Series 4 of Games Master aired, the X-Files debuted on BBC Two. It was on uh, Monday. Well, sorry, no, I don't know if it was a Monday, but it was on the... It would have been the Monday, wouldn't it? It was it on was Monday, Monday the 19th. Do you know how I knew that as well? It's because I was watching the BBC Two trailer for it again this morning because I was getting some screenshots for it to share on Twitter. That's why it was in my head. Monday the 19th of September, 1994. And, and we had said probably about a year ago that once we reached it in our timeline, we would do an episode of UCP Extra on the show and probably even do something as well like to kind of celebrate us hitting that milestone and you and i discussed about what episode we could do and we thought well we'll pick two episodes each to put up onto the poll and we'll make sure we pick a monster of the week type episode like basically so you don't need to know a bunch of stuff going in you don't need to know a bunch of stuff that's going to happen afterwards so that way is just like a much easier kind of gateway in um i mean even for someone like me because something we'll probably cover in a little bit uh, as much as i'm a fan of the x-files my knowledge of it is next to zero because i can't remember most of the episodes even when i've done rewatches of it a lot of it doesn't stick with me and i will start a rewatch i will get to a certain point and then leave it for five years i will then start that rewatch again i'll go right back to the start get to a certain point stop leave it for another five years go back to it and i go back so i've probably never seen past a certain point of this show and i would wager it's probably Anything that's after series five, I've probably never seen. So we wanted to pick an episode that, you know, was just a nice little gateway episode. So the two that I made suggestion was Ice, which the episode we are going to cover. And I didn't even know what the name of it was. You did. I was like, it's the one that Stephen King did with the doll. And the doll goes, let's have fun. Because I remember it scaring the dickens out of me when I saw it as a kid. And that was Chinga, which unfortunately came dead last. I got 9% of the vote. Although I did watch it this morning. It's quite a fun little episode. But Ice is the one that's always stuck with me because it's the thing. Basically, what if the X-Files did the thing? I always remember Ice as the one where everyone just goes, oh, it's a rip-off of the thing. 
Although looking at it for this episode, I'm thinking, actually, it's not. It's in the Arctic. That's about, like, that's borderline it, really. And the loss of identity is a theme. Yeah. That, that's the biggest bit. It's probably got more to do with who goes there, the, the short story. But, but we'll get on to that in a bit. The two candidates I chose were Jose Chung's From Outer Space, which is a great little standalone episode that features Jesse the Body Ventura as a man in black. Scully, what's going on here? Walter, these gentlemen have something very important to tell you. Some alien encounters are hoaxes perpetrated by your government to manipulate the public. Some of these hoaxes are intentionally revealed to manipulate the truth seekers who become discredited if they disclose the deliberately absurd deception. Well, similar things are said about the men in black, that they purposely dress and behave strangely so that if anyone tries to describe an encounter with them, they come off sounding like a lunatic. I find absolutely no reason why anyone would think you crazy if you describe this meeting of ours. There are other many great things about that episode, but it's got Jesse the Body Ventura as a man in black. And the other episode I chose is X-Cops. Yes, which is one that I haven't actually seen, but that's the, uh, the, the not Cops parody, but like, what if Cops did an episode on the X-Files? Yeah, they actually involved some of the Cops production crew. They, they took it seriously, or as seriously as you can take a show like Cops. And I thought... There we go. We've got a nice four-episode spread. My thought was that either Chinga would do well because of the Stephen King connection, or Jose Chung's From Outer Space would do well because it is widely regarded as one of the best-slash-funniest episodes. Whereas I thought Ice would do well because it's like the thing. Well, you were right, <laughs> and I was wrong. There is no conspiracy here. Ice ran away with it, 47% of the vote. Jose Chung's did okay, 29%. X-Cops 15, and poor old Chinga with, with 9% of the vote. Yeah, and David Fisher said that we talked ourselves out of doing a, a Tombs episode, but that again feels like there's a, probably a bit too much to cover with sort of that kind of thing. Especially because he appears multiple times. That, that's what I mean, yeah. The only way to do a Tombs episode would be to just make the vote between the Tombs episodes. Make people pick a Tombs episode, because if you put Tombs against anything else, Tombs will win. I, I think so, yeah. I mean, Mark said, a tough choice. I was and still am an avid fan. I'm going to mull over this, but leaning towards Jose for the fun of it, equally, it might have been the Clyde Bruckman's final resp uh, response video that's got a fantastic actor as a foil to Mulder and Scully, or my final repose. I, it's an episode I don't know much about. Go and watch it. Just, just pick it, pick it at random. You don't need to know, do the mythology to watch that one. It's worth seeing. It's very emotional. It's very touching at times. And uh, it's got a great uh, spoof of Yuri Geller. So uh, you are a, a big X-Files fan. That much I, I do very much know about you. Uh, and I know that you have been very excited to do this episode. And you've been very excited for us to hit this point in our, uh, un our under-consultation timeline. Absolutely. X-Files was a big thing for me growing up. Uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, one of which is the other big sci-fi show I was into, Doctor Who, was dead at this point. And the uh, Children in Need special kind of really put that uh, bullet in the coffin, really. I mean, there were books coming out and we had the new adventures from Virgin Publishing and they were great, but it wasn't on TV as a new ongoing series. Also, Doctor Who was a joke. You know, it was ropey, it um, had a low budget, and it, it was a punchline. It wasn't cool to be a Doctor Who fan. 
not like 2005 where it became cool and sexy and then I was just like, I'm an old man now. Um, the X-Files kind of fit a similar gap to Games Master. Uh, something I brought up when we talked to Dominic is how Games Master provided something to talk about that kind of distracted the bullies because it made video games cool and interesting. And the X-Files made science fiction and fantasy and horror cool and interesting because it was a massive thing when it launched in the UK. The build-up to this was immense. There were trailers on the television, there was newsprint ads, there were posters, there were magazine articles, interviews were popping up all over the place. It was becoming a major pop culture phenomena right from episode one. And as you said, it goes out Monday night, Tuesday morning... That was the discussion topic. Did you watch the X-Files, OMG, UFOs, LOL? Not quite that, because this was the 90s, so, um, I don't know, uh, mint? Radical. Radical, mint, choice, yeah. moist, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's amazing because as big as it was over here, immediately from the offset, one is it wasn't on BBC One, it was a BBC Two launch. It skipped Sky, it did go to Sky eventually, but it skipped Sky to begin with, and it did go to BBC One eventually. Something strange is coming. Be careful. It knows you. Tell no soul what you're witnessing here. Something unexplained. We've both seen physical evidence, Scully. Something is coming from the other side. The X-Files is moving from BBC Two to BBC One. Tuesday at 10. Prepare to adjust your set. It kind of went up into the big leagues, but yeah, it was a BBC Two 9pm thing. In America, there was a some there was some attempt at build up for this when it debuted, but it was batting against the odds because this was not a series that network executives wanted. Sci-fi never makes money. Like that is a TV network, but that is also a movie executive uh, standpoint. And I, I know because I have spoken to many in my time, and I've spoken to many people who've worked within the Hollywood system and TV industry who have said sci-fi is so hard to sell to TV executives because they just think, oh, well, it worked with Star Wars, but it's never worked with anything else. And so it's a dead hard sell on people. They don't want edgy. They don't want daring. They want like Law and Order or Murder, She Wrote or Diagnosis Murder for their hour-long dramas. You know, they want comfortable. They want stuff that they can put in syndication and reruns for years. And when Chris Carter first pitched it to Fox, it was rejected outright. When he did eventually get them to pay attention to the script and it actually started to move forward, he immediately started to hit problems there. Because while the network were entirely comfortable with David Duchovny, who loved the script and wanted to be part of it, and Chris Carter was on board with it... Chris Carter loved Gillian Anderson for the role of Dana Scully, and the network did not. They wanted someone leggier, sexier, boobier, and blonder. Yeah, it was the it's the mid nineties. They need someone they can put up on a poster that's going to make uh, the, the, the 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 lads the lads uh, you know of whatever that nineties culture would have been to tune in. Chris Carter thankfully stuck to his guns because he wanted to create a show that people would take seriously and he did not feel that by playing to the more conventional stereotypes of the attractive lead male and the attractive lead female i mean julian anderson terribly attractive still now but not what was early 90s stereotype she wasn't pamela anderson you know she wasn't the platinum blonde 
This is someone they would have wanted, particularly because, like, at this point as well, Baywatch is doing great numbers, and that's what Baywatch is being sold on. Baywatch is being sold on the fact that look at all these pretty people doing pretty things. And when it came to actually developing the pilot and getting it in front of the cameras, Chris Carter drew from a number of different places his influences. The most well-known is Kolchak. May I introduce myself? My name is Kolchak of the Daily Chronicle. Kolchak reports the bizarre, the supernatural, the unexplainable. You again in another crazy story. This nut thinks he is a vampire. You know what I call that? Irresponsible yellow journalism. He has killed four, maybe five women. Darren McGavin. The Night Stalker. Not a long-running series because, again, genre fiction has issues in America, but one that left its mark. Also, The Twilight Zone, Silence of the Lambs. We're following this with a live commentary episode on Pilot the pilot episode and first broadcast episode of The X-Files. That The way that opens is very Silence of the Lambs procedural and you can really feel the influence of it there. But also things like Prime Suspect, drawing influence from a British television show mm. and the way that uh, criminal investigations were approached on that show as opposed to the way it was done in things like uh, NYPD Blue or, or Law and Order. And the other one, and this particularly pays reference to Mulder and Scully is the Avengers where there may be a chemistry between the two leads but it is to start with at least platonic Fox wanted there to be a romantic interest between these two and Chris Carter was like yep yeah I mean it's it's very much like there in the subtext for a lot of like the, the of the first couple of series before they eventually sort of pull the trigger on it and i think a lot of that is down to sort of like because fans of shows do love a will they won't they relationship and i think it's i i, I know of certain people who love a will they won't they relationship and actually turn off a show once you've basically answered that question and it's because then it becomes less interesting because the interest is in the will they or won't they yeah, Chris Carter wanted to avoid that. He obviously came around, and actually, I don't think the X-Files lost anything by eventually putting them together. No. Because they were partners for a long time before they were partners. But what Chris Carter wanted to avoid, at least initially, was he wanted to avoid moonlighting, because that, at that point, was the most iconic male-female duo on television. And, of course, uh, Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard's characters were together. Mm-hmm. I love you two kids, but can you really blame the audience? Case of Poison Ivy's more fun than watching you two lately. Ah, what are you talking about? What about all the laughs we had? Yeah. People don't want laughs, David. They want romance. Romance? And romance is a very fragile thing. Once it's over, it's over. And I'm afraid for you two. It's over. But it's not over. David and I are still friends. Yeah, we're buddies. Oh, goody. That's exactly what America wants to see. David and Maddie, friends. In addition to really cementing the careers of David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson and Chris Carter and Mark Snow and, oh, God, so many writers. Uh, if you look down the list of writers that worked on this show in the first few years, you will see some of the writers behind Space Above and Beyond lost 24 this was a show that launched many careers in many different areas. It also launched the production career 
of Vancouver. Canada has always been a good place to substitute in for uh, New York. It's much cheaper to shoot there than it is to do it in actual New York. Uh, Friday the 13th, uh, very, very famously, is it has what, like, the, the last third of it takes place, quote, in New York, but there's literally about four shots of the movie, possibly five, that are actually done in New York. And the rest of it is done in alleys in Vancouver, because it's much easier to shoot in. Or on a boat. Or Yeah, I was going to say, that first two-thirds is just on a fucking boat, and they never get off the fucking thing. Films that have got a much more interesting backstory than they do an actual end product. Friday the 13th Part 8 is one of those movies. Absolutely. And oddly, it is one of my favourite Friday the 13th movies because it is so phenomenally stupid. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not good, but it is one that I will, I will more happily watch that than I would Jason X, actually. Because Jason X has got... Because Jason X is unfortunately in a post-screen world. So at least like Friday the 13th uh, Part 8 is unknowingly shit, whereas uh, Jason X is knowingly shit. Also, part eight, it gives us pre-Rudy Giuliani clean-up New York. Yeah, exactly. It's It's still when 42nd Street was sleazy and scuzzy, and it's really nice to get that sort of thing captured on film. Like, this is Times Square before it was a family destination. You would not take your family to Times Square because Jason Voorhees was not the scariest thing there. We've got a, a Jason Voorhees connection in this episode. We do, right at the top of the episode. Right at the top of the episode, which we'll get into when we talk about the episode itself, uh, when, we go, when we go through the cast list. But like, yeah, you're right. Like, and it's because I remember when the X-Files did their crossover episode with The Simpsons that Duchovny and Anderson didn't do any of their stuff in LA because they were quite happy being there in Vancouver. So they did all of their lines of dialogue in Vancouver on the set of the X-Files because they were very, very happy there. Wait a minute, Scully. What's the point of this test? No point. I just thought he could stand to lose a little weight. His jiggling is almost hypnotic. Yes, it's like a lava lamp. Also, a beautiful, beautiful place. I was in Vancouver uh, a couple of years ago on my honeymoon and it's awesome. Oh, I've I've not been there. I would I would like to go there at some point because Vancouver, twinned with every other fucking city in the world, possibly a few not on this world. In fact, I'm fairly certain a fair few off-world sci-fi epics have also shot in Vancouver because Vancouver. But they did get through the pilot. It did go into production. It did get commissioned. It did go to a series and it did broadcast. And despite it finding kind of like a really positive reaction from Fox executives, the papers and the trade press were not kind to it. Entertainment Weekly said, this one's a goner, purely because network TV already had Highlander, Forever Night and Star Trek. Why did we need more speculative fiction? Surely there was enough things there for everyone. The pie had already been sliced up. And with the exception of Star Trek The Next Generation, no speculative fiction series really did any business and none of them made it past two or three seasons. They just they just ended. I mean, you mentioned earlier how The X-Files was sort of like a gateway show for people who might not have been interested in sci-fi, but, you know, they would sort of watch this thing because it was quite cool. I was actually watching a, a video essay yesterday about Game of Thrones where they mentioned it was the, you know, kind of a similar thing was said about that show. 
is it's um it was described as fantasy for people who don't like fantasy which is a mad statement when you think about it because that show is about as fantasy as it gets but what they sort of mean by that is that fantasy shows up until that point were just stuff that was on sci-fi and cost about 200 quid and a packet of peanuts to make um you know an entire season of and it looks cheap as fuck and i think what the the x-files is you know and kind of like widest to the test of time is that a it doesn't look cheap as fuck b it doesn't look like it was made for the sci-fi channel and so c it's got a lot of gravitas about it it benefited by being shot on film like all good dramas of the time were whereas a lot of the sci-fi original stuff was either shot on beta cam or was edited and post-produced on it and therefore any benefits you'd get from film would be lost at that point. It'd be great to say that in America at least the X-Files did great business in season one and it was a case of what fools we've been. It didn't. Out of 118 rated programmes for that time period, it ranked 102. Mm. But it wasn't cancelled. Not the same as renewed, but it wasn't cancelled. And then over a summer period... They showed it again. It kind of filtered down to the smaller local broadcasters who were being asked for it by people at that point because it was starting to get the ground support. It did better numbers on a summer rerun than new series that were debuting that summer. And that's when the network started to go, we might have something here. Because local stations were getting calls from audiences asking, has this been renewed? The local stations were calling Fox going, has this been renewed? Fox marketing was getting calls from shops being asked is there going to be x-files merchandise and season two debuted still not a colossal hit but fox knew they were on to something good yeah the upswing starts at that point basically coming friday the fbi has turned against them we must assume we're going to watch the government is trying to kill them now agent scully and Mulder are about to make their most startling discovery Contact the X Files season premiere Friday. So let's move on to Ice, Um, and it's quite good because we can actually go through pretty much the entire cast of this episode because there's not that many of them. Like there is essentially two people at the start, uh, Mulder and Scully, and three others, and a dog. Well, and yes, and the dog, David Duchovny. Is David Duchovny's dog's dad or something? Or According to the Tribune, the IMD trivia, which I have used some of in my notes, but as with anything from the IMDB, take with a pinch of salt. Oh yeah, as Paul W. Sanderson used to call it, the incorrect movie database, because you can add any old shite onto there. Steven Spielberg was not meant to be in Mortal Kombat, the movie, I can tell you that much. Um, But yeah, in our cast, we have got uh, David Duchovny as Mulder and Gillian Anson as Scully, who I don't think need much introduction of this, although I will say... One of the things that has stopped my wife and I doing a joint rewatch of this show is that my wife does not like David Duchovny as Mulder in this show. Really? Yeah, she finds him incredibly creepy. That is that is her words. I think he's meant to be. Well, yeah, and that is what I would argue, which is like, but he's like uh, also like um, it, it's nicknamed Spooky, Spooky Mulder. Yeah, <laughs> like, but not, not not creepy in that sense. Creepy in sort of like a no, I just don't want to be near you sort of sense. Put the lotion in the basket. Yeah, that kind of creepy. Exactly. That's sort of how she finds him to be a little bit. Dukovny for me though, like it's. I remember when I was so this has been you know I can't remember what year this would have been maybe two thousand two thousand and one ish. My character on all wrestling games that I that came out at that time was called Fox Rider. 
named after Fox Mulder, Ryder, with a Y no less. I did it way before Zack Ryder did it. And that was always my character because I thought that Fox was like the coolest first name I'd ever heard for a character when I was like at my nan's house watching this on BBC Two or what. I might have been in BBC One by that point. It is a pretty, pretty cool name and it's pretty unusual even for America. Yeah, but my memory of David Duchovny is him leaving the show and him going on to do other projects. Well, he's like, I seem to recall this being on The Big Breakfast was them doing a preview of Evolution and saying, like, it's funny how David Duchovny left The X-Files because he wanted to do something that was different than The X-Files and then went on to do a space, uh, a movie about a space alien coming, a space alien race coming down to Earth. What do we do? We might have to amputate. Whoa, Doc! Don't take the leg! Don't let him take my leg. Is there anything else you can do? He thinks he's an athlete. Wait, Doctor, look. Setting for his testicles. Take it! Take it! Take the leg! Wait, wait, wait! No, 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 no! It's going the other way. All right, give me some forceps. I might be able to catch it in his colon. How are you going in? Rectally. I'll get the lubricant. There's no time for lubricant. There's always time for lubricant! I mean, well, who wouldn't want to do evolution? Because, Luke, it's going to be the next Ghostbusters. Hey, dude, I mean, it basically, it's... Oh, man, Sony, always looking for that next Ghostbusters. Have been since 1984. <laughs> I do love evolution, though. I think I proper rate that movie. I think it's still very, very funny. And also, it's got a great role in it for Ethan Supley. Uh, is, Willem yeah. from More Rats. Yeah, he yeah. gets a nice standout role in that. Gillian uh, Anson, I absolutely adore Gillian Anson. She is tremendous in the, the Netflix show Sex Education. She is superb in that. I have not seen The Crown, but I am, uh, I've been made aware that she's very, very good as Maggie Thatcher. Your family must be very proud. You have two children? Yes, but grown up now and out of the house. And your husband is retired, is that right? Yes, but he won't get in the way, if that's what you're asking. Dennis is very good at taking care of himself. His golf clubs will be in the hallway. He will come and go as he pleases. He knows how busy I will be and how hard I intend to work. Yeah, her, her role as Maggie Thatcher caused, I think, a lot of confused boners for, oh, yeah. for teenagers of the 90s because it's like, it's Gillian Anderson, but it's Thatcher. Anderson, yeah. Thatcher. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that caused some therapists to, to get money from that one. Yeah, there was a lot of tweets out being like, this would be the most confusing wank of my life. I would argue they're probably lying when they say that. <laughs> uh, also in this episode, we have Xander Berkeley playing Dr. Hodge, who, when I saw him on TV, when I saw him watching this episode, I was like, oh, it's the stepdad from Terminator 2. God, it is, isn't it? telling him to keep that damn dog shut up. And then he gets a big knife through his throat. Uh, we've also got Felicity Huffman as Dr. De Silva, who is you know, one of those great character actors of the time. Uh, you know, she's also been in uh, multiple episodes of Desperate Housewives. She was Julia from Frasier. But like my favorite thing when going through uh, her IMDb list is of, you know, when you talk about sort of character actors of the time, she was in Law and Order twice in from five, five years apart playing two different characters. Because that's just what you did in TV at that point. Oh, that is so common in Law and Order as well. Yeah, exactly. Particularly Law and Order, yeah. You can play different characters in the same season on different Law and Order varieties. I'm fairly certain there was an actress who played uh, victims on three different Law and Order episodes, all of which aired within two months of each other. 
Well, uh, Jeff Cobra, who plays Bear, the, the the pilot that takes them there, he is one of those actors. You go through, he is in Law, Law and Order or uh, CSI. He's been in various episodes of CSI, just playing different characters within the series because he's sort of got that look about him, I guess. Like he is just almost like, well, we need a guy that looks a little bit weird. Get Jeff Cobra on the phone. Rack from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is what I know him from. He also is the person with my second favourite line in this episode. Uh, my first being the one I quoted from Mulder at the beginning. And his is, I ain't dropping my cargo for no one. <laughs> uh, he was also, uh, I, I wanted to make this connection because it does come up for us later on. Uh, he was in the remake of Night of the Meek in the 80s Twilight Zone series. So that's fun. Um, and we've also got Stephen Heitner as Murphy, who has been Seinfeld friends, face off and that sort of stuff. But come on, the person we really want to talk about here is our man right at the top of this episode. He was the stunt coordinator for the show. But to me... He is replacement Jason, Ken Kersinger, Canadian Jason, if you will. Yes, the hockey mask with the fate scent of maple. He was Jason in Freddy vs. Jason, which I have a soft spot for. Yeah, I, I love that design. Absolutely adore that design. And I love the fact as well, he's about 12 foot tall. Let's be honest, we'd have preferred to see Kane Hodder in the role because it's Kane Hodder. Which is what, and that's what fans wanted to see. They wanted to see Kane Hodder versus Robert Englund. Like it, it's as much as it was Freddy versus Jason. That's what kind of we wanted to see was those two actors who were Fred, and Robert was the only one to play that role. But Kane was the best of the Jasons, so it just like that's the one we want. That's the clash we wanted to see. It's what Kane wanted to see as well. I mean, talking about bad films with interesting stories, Freddy versus Jason, a film that was meant to come out before Jason X, but was still in development hell when Jason X was released. Yeah. It's like go back as far as 1988. Like that film was sort of bounded around. Like like when they were doing, um, even before they did part seven, when they ended up doing, it's like, well, we can't do Freddy versus Jason. We'll do Jason versus Carrie instead. When I used to go to the memorabilia shows in Birmingham, there was always a stand there that sold scripts. They were just like mass photocopied and cheaply bound. But it was great because these were, this was before fan scripts became a thing, really. So these were all photocopies of drafts or submitted scripts and I remember there was a special and it was five scripts for £20 and they were all bound so it was nice and they were it was bagged up and the one on top was Freddy versus Jason and this would have been around 96, 97 and I said to the guy and I said oh what are the other four and he's like Freddy versus Jason it was just five different drafts of Freddy versus Jason I bought those. I think I've still got one of them in storage. I don't know what happened to the other four. But man, they were some radically different takes on Freddy versus Jason, including I think one of the ones in there was the one where Freddy was Jason's dad. Yeah, there's a like that came up a, a fair a couple of not a fair number of times, a couple of times. I think you was at the, the the cult, the Fred heads. Like they were trying to bring Freddy back. My favorite of the drafts, we're going on a massive tangent here. Um, this will be one of those things I'm amazed it'll be, it'll still be in the edit, but I kind of hope that it does. Um, my favorite of the drafts is it's the post scream one. Freddy, uh, Friday the 13th movies were based on real life events, and there was a real Jason Voorhees who was then on trial. And I kind of like, I love the idea of that one because it was, you know, that again, that sort of, let's take a postmodern look at the Friday the 13th franchise. For me, it was, it was one of the ones with the really interesting takes on it. And it was much better than, oh man, which was the draft that introduced the third killer? I cannot remember what his name was now. That's really escaped me. 
But there's one where this guy was like really trying to drive home this new serial killer that they were going to use almost use this as a backdoor pilot for. I don't think I can't remember. I'm. It is. Uh, that's one of the ones detailed in Slash of the Titans. Yes, which is a book that I. I've mentioned on this podcast before, I absolutely hate because I wanted to write that book. I was already working on writing that book. They had a much better title than I did. So I don't mind it too much. I'll be honest, that dude has written some really good books. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't begrudge him, I don't begrudge him for it. I'm just annoyed that I didn't get there first. Because I've recently, via Audible, listened to both of his Halloween books, including one book that is just dedicated on 20-odd unmade Halloween scripts, uh, his two books on the Phantasm series... And I just discovered he's written a book on Jaws, The Ride. Oh, amazing. <laughs> and it's on Audible, and that was an easy one-credit kachunk because I always wish I'd got to go on Jaws, The Ride, and I never did. Oh, did you never get to do it? No, I got to do Back to the Future. I didn't get to do Jaws, The Ride, and so I, I can't wait to listen to that and live vicariously. But yes, we are tremendously tangenting, but the basic of it is Ken Kersinger played Jason Voorhees. He was very good in the role. But it should have been Kane Hodder. Yeah, essentially he was brought in because Ronnie Yu wanted someone who was taller than Robert Englund because he really was interested in this idea of the big, tall, muscly one versus the short, lanky one. He's like, and I can't, I can't do that with Kane and I and Robert. So I'm going to cast Kane Kersinger because, as I said, he's about twelve foot tall. But the favorite thing about this is I went when I was at Fright Fest a few years back. They had the Kane Hodder documentary there, which is really, really good. It's a really good documentary and. Kane was there to introduce it and do a Q&A session. And he kind of like almost treated it as like the last Q&A he was ever going to do. I mean, I would, I'd imagine he will do more of them. He opened it up with, before you ask me any questions, I've done these for 20 odd years now. I've been doing Q&A sessions and I've been doing screenings and stuff for 20 plus years. Here are the five questions no one has ever asked me before. And he detailed all five of those questions. He said, those are the questions that no one has ever asked me before. Now I would like to take some questions from the audience. Then everyone, you know, asked the sort of questions that he usually gets asked. And then someone picked up the microphone and said, we all really would have liked you in Freddy versus Jason, but we got Ken Kersinger. If it was the other way round, what would you have done? And Kane sort of stood there and was stumped and was like, I've never been asked that before. And so I was like, it turns out there were six questions. If it had been Ken Kersinger who was best known for him and then Kane was offered the role, would he have taken it? And he paused and he was like, oh, 100% I would have taken it because it was work. I don't begrudge Ken for taking the job. Yeah, never, never begrudge someone for taking a role that you are known for. Begrudge the producers for not asking you in the first place. On the other side of the lens, a couple of notable mentions. First is, this episode is written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong, who you will know as probably one of the best duo of writers on the X-Files, and in fact so good, they were given $8 million by Fox to go off and develop other stuff. Uh, the other stuff being Space Above and Beyond, that didn't work out so well. But they also did work on Millennium, which also didn't work out so well which is a crime given it had lance fucking henriksen in it yeah like they are like long long-standing writing partners frightening they are long-standing writing partners and they've done a bunch of stuff together. like going back like to you know 21 jump street like levels of like you know that's the sort of tv that they were working on funny enough actually uh glenn morgan wrote episodes of 21 jump street that david nutter the director of this episode also directed so very nice to see kind of like the three of them work together uh, they also, the pair of them wrote 
my favorite of the final destination series the third one which i think is it's easily my favorite of the lot and it's not just because i absolutely adore mary elizabeth winstead i think that the theme park bit is really really fun i think the deaths are really creative and it takes itself more seriously than the second one does absolutely love final destination 3 but the thing that really jumped out to me when i was looking through their mdb credits is the pair of them worked on the twilight zone reboot that we got a couple of years ago Mm. uh, with jordan peele they wrote an episode called eight which is about a group of scientists in sort of like you know the arctic discovering a new life form that endangered them i bet you in an interview they said we're not ripping off the thing (laughs) yeah or the episode of the x-files that we did back in 93 do you reckon it's just been so long they go nah no one remembers ice mate everyone <laughs> yeah. remembers ice wong directed the live action movie of dragon ball dragon ball evolution yeah, yeah. i mean I, i'm not a dragon ball guy but i have heard that it is no good but he is an exec producer on american horror story which i have heard is good i've only watched one season of it and that was uh, american horror story 84 that's the only one I've seen as well. And I didn't even I actually didn't finish it, but I did see like the first four or so episodes of it. Oh, you should finish it. There, there's twists in it that, you know, much like you, I've watched more horror movies than is healthy. There's shit in that one that I did not see coming. But you mentioned David Nutter, who directed this episode. He directed 14 other episodes of The X-Files. He also directed four episodes of Millennium. He's directed ER, Roswell, Dark Angel, Smallville, The Sopranos... He also directed one of the most highly regarded episodes of Game of Thrones, which you may or may not have seen at this point, called The Reigns of Castamir. Uh, I will have seen it now because I finished the series the other night. So you have seen one of the most well-regarded episodes. It's the episode with the Red Wedding. Oh, is that? Okay, that really? That was David Nussel, was it? Okay. It's the episode that I think killed the show. I mean, it killed a lot of people. Yeah. But for a good chunk of his career, he had a nickname. He was the pilot whisperer. He didn't direct the pilot episode of The X-Files, but up until 2011, every show whose pilot he directed was commissioned for at least one full season, and it ended when CBS didn't pick up a show called The Doctor. He directed 16 pilots that went to a full series. That's impressive. It's a pretty good track record, because like it's unlike the way that British TV gets made. American TV is exceptionally different, and it is that pilot set. They have a pilot season, a lot of pilots get made, and a lot of them don't get picked up. In fact, like, way more don't get picked up than do. So to have 16 to your name is a very, very good... That's a good batting average. But we have waffled on for almost an hour in real-time recording. God knows how much of it will make it into the final edit. Shall we actually move on to the episode? A chilling terror lurks in the eyes for Mulder and Scully, an X-File now on BBC Two that will really make your skin crawl. We are. 
goes no further than this. It stops right here. Right now. So we open on a lovely little model shot of uh, the Arctic Ice Core project out in Icy Cape in Alaska, 250 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And we have this really tense and sort of lovely little walkthrough shot of this dog walking around dead bodies, essentially taking you through the episode that you didn't get to see that preceded the events that we are now in. And in walks our man Ken Kersinger, a bloodied and battered with his gun in his hand. And he sits down in front of this video camera to give the speech that becomes like, it, it gets referenced a couple of times because Mulder and Scully watch this videotape and the line gets said later on afterwards. You know, this we're not who we are. This ends here. Um, it's a really, really cracking opening to the show. It is a great cold open it's a very very cold open is in the fucking arctic but but just remember luke as morgan and wong have said they 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 weren't ripping off the thing it just so happens to be on an arctic base with a dog and people who are not who they say they are I, I, come on who do they genuinely think they're kidding i was gonna say like i'd imagine it must be frustrating if you are the right to this episode and people are like didn't you just rip off the thing be like no no we didn't but like there's so many there's a reason why a lot of people say, oh, this is like if the X-Files did the thing. I mean, Chris Carter has even said, yeah, it was inspired by the thing. And it's like, wow, when the showrunner is essentially on dogging on the writers who are going, no, no, well, well, maybe, maybe a little bit. Look, guys, there's no shame in it because you did something that the thing prequel failed to do. You made it good. Yeah. And this episode, like, I mean, cards out on the table. Is a really, really good episode. Really, really one of the stronger, strongest episodes of the first series. I, I really enjoyed it, and a lot of that is because it's so contained. It's like there's what you know, two sets in this whole thing. This is literally a bottle episode. It is cheap as balls to make because they do not go anywhere. They they do not go anywhere. We have maybe one or two small sets, and we have two short location shots, and. This was a bottle episode. It was made because the X-Files at that point was going grossly over budget. They needed to save money. Guess what they didn't actually do with this episode? What was that? They didn't save money. It didn't cost any less than a normal episode because of the production values they applied. I mean, we have prosthetic work. We have effects and miniature work. We have CGI work. I was going to say the CGI in this episode. But we get the cold open and boom, we're into this title sequence which amazingly we won't get to talk about later because it's not in the pilot episode, but it's here. This is a title sequence that remained unchanged for almost the entire series run. It was revised around series seven, but even when it came back with the with the continuation a few years back, it was still the same theme. It was still the same title sequence. This team of scientists made up the Arctic Ice Core Project. They were sent to Alaska by the government's advanced research project agency nearly a year ago to drill into the Arctic ice. The samples they removed contained trapped gases, dust, chemicals, evidence that could reveal the structure of the Earth's climate back to the dawn of man. Their work was a success, nearly completed. No reports or indications of problems of any kind. Until only a week later, this next transmission.
not who we are. So after the intro credits, we cut to Mulder and Scully in their office with Scully watching back the video that we just saw Ken Kersinger make. We didn't mention, actually, that Ken Kersinger and the other lad that he's with, who was the another stuntman on the show named Sonny Surowiec, uh, they kill each other. They both look at each other and they put them against their head and it cuts back to the outside of the model shot and we hear two gunshots go off to signal that they have done themselves in. And now Mulder and Scully are being called in to go and investigate what this is with a very short time window available where, because the weather is so bad, they've basically got like three days. So you better bring your mittens. Gillian Anderson is so, so, so great in all of this. She absolutely is. And uh, I do love that Mulder, when telling her that, you know, this is where we're going, this is what we're going to do, just goes, well, we're either brilliant or expendable. And at this point... It's definitely the latter because we're still in the first season and, you know, the powers that be still want Scully to debunk the X-Files. That's what she's there for, yeah. There is something I love about this scene and it's something I think we're missing now, partly because cameras have gotten so good. Seeing something on videotape makes it more believable. Mm. There is something about when you're watching these video diaries because they're on tape, because they look more homemade... It's the same in uh, Aliens when you get the uh, the body cams from the Marines and it's on CRT TVs and it's actually a video feed like being fed through VHS or whatever and there's the distortion. It feels guerrilla. It feels kind of found footage. And that is a, a very true statement because if you compare that to um, Jurassic World that essentially does their version of that scene from Aliens. And I don't think it's as good. And I don't think that's just down to the fact that Colin Trevorrow is probably not on the same level as Jim Cameron. I just think that the, the digital version of that is less effective because like, you have like the, the fuzz all over everything and sort of like never always the clearest image. So you're essentially are, you are seeing something but not seeing every bit of detail. I don't know. I don't know if there's a way you can do it satisfactory with digital cameras. The only thing I can suggest is like go low res. Like, have it 640 by 480 rather than 4K, 1080 or whatever, you know, make... Because that's the thing, most covert body cams aren't the best picture quality. They actually need to go out and buy some of these cheap Chinese cameras that the people are wearing and look at them and work out how they look or look at the sort of body cams that security guards wear and look at the actual quality. Mirror that. With video cameras, it was easy to do because you actually just got the video camera and you used a video camera for some of it. So now that we've got our mission, we find ourselves in Doolittle Airfield, where we meet basically the rest of the team that's going with them, including uh, Danny Murphy from San Diego, um, who basically, like, we introduced this idea that he is listening to, like, this is a brilliant way to kind of tell you everything you need to know about uh, Mulder as a character as well, because... Murphy is listening to uh, football. He's into the American football, and like they come up and be like, "Oh, uh, what you listen to is like the football. Oh, my team just scored." And he said, and he explains the play. Dave Duchovny, without a beat, was just like, "Didn't he retire in X amount of years?" And he's just like, "Yeah, there's basically an old, it's an old tape." And it's a lovely little thing to a gives Danny a character, tells you everything you need to know about Mulder as a character, and sets up something that you can then use later on in the episode to um, explain that it's going to be Murphy that's gone missing. You two FBI? Agent Mulder, Agent Scully. You? 
Denny Murphy, professor of geology, UC San Diego. San Diego? You get much of a chance to study ice down there? Just what's around the keg. The line I did like from Murphy, though, is when Mulder's, you know, have you got much use to, uh, have you got any experience with ice? And he's just like, oh, you know, only what's around the keg. I'm like, dude, you are 40. You are not going to any keg party whatsoever. No, he absolutely has. And he's always the guy that just kills the mood by being the 40-year-old that turns up to keg parties. Uh, speaking of 40-year-olds who are here to kill the mood, Hodge, or, or you know, the, the foster dad from Terminator 2 walks up, who basically, his character is, I don't trust Mulder and Scully because they're the FBI and I don't trust anything that they do. Which is great, because this whole episode is about who can you trust. Realistically, other than the setting, that is actually what it takes the most from the thing and who goes there, is that sense of paranoia and suspicion. And... That, that is actually where the similarities end. You know, the, the monster is very different. You know, it's, it's, it's a tequila worm. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got a very, very different mission as well, which is, you know, it's about, like, uh, offing each other if, you know, there are two parasites within one body, we find out later on. It's a, it's a completely different... Also, you don't fucking die if you, if you get it. Like, it doesn't just completely assimilate you. Yeah, you know, it doesn't turn you into a skin suit, essentially. Yeah. You folks the ones going up to Icy Cape? Yeah. But I'm the one flying you. My name's Bear. Planes across the way, provisions are loaded. Grab your gear. Oh, can we see some credentials? <laughs> credentials. The only credentials I have is that I'm the only pilot willing to fly you up there. You don't like those credentials? Walk. Our final character, Bear, arrives. He's the pilot. The only credentials that I need is I'm the only pilot that's going to take you there. That's my character in a nutshell. If you don't like it, walk. This, you know, it's again, it's just solid character stuff. And it also, in that very simple line of like, I'm the only son of a bitch crazy enough to fly you there, does also answer the question, which is always an issue in films like this, which is why can only one person fly the fucking plane? It also answers our question, which of you is going to be the first to die? Because the answer is, it's definitely Bear. I can't remember. Is he wearing a red shirt? I feel like he should be wearing a red shirt. He basically is, and he's getting ready to hand it to Danny, to, to Murphy's character. Like, he's def like there's, there's no way that these two are lasting this whole thing. But sometime later, we see a light airplane flying over a snow-covered hill, which I guarantee is some degree of stock footage. <laughs> yeah. And they, they arrive at this building, and they're walking around being like, you know, uh, we need to uh, document the scene before we touch anything. I'm like, yep, Mulder's done this before. Like, that is a smart way of approaching this, as opposed to being like, that's a body, start touching it. Scully is handy-dandy with the camera. Mulder starts investigating fridges. Maybe he's looking for the keg. Who knows? <laughs> and as they continue to investigate the compound, the generator comes back. The generator. And that is the point where Mulder is attacked by the same dog that we saw in the cold, cold open. Yeah, so when the two guys at the start killed themselves because they were hoping that that was going to be the end of this parasite, what they hadn't accounted for was the bloody dog had one. Oh, no. So then actually the, the dog has now, like, it tries to bite Mulder, but they say that it doesn't break the skin. However, it does break the skin of Bear. 
And I'm guessing this is after it left the Norwegian base and went to the outpost. No, oh, no, wait, you're, no you're, sorry, no, you're mistaken. Not this is not a. It's not a direct reference to the thing. And it's oh, not, it's, it's right. not a remake of the thing. You, 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 it's an easy mistake to make, but the writers have told us so. Oh right, I was going to say, yeah. You think they think they'd want to make that clear that this isn't a ripoff of the thing. They may as well have had a character called the Norwegian. They could have all drunk angry Norwegians. That would have been <laughs> that would have been the way to get the reference in. There is a drinking game in this episode, by the way, which I'll get to shortly. Mm, okay, well, we'll get to that in a second. This is where we start. Like, just before we get to our first ad break, we really need to set up what the the plot of this episode is, and sort of like your hook to make you watch the you know watch on. And the the hook is that the the dog has got these like black nodule things on it that are kind of like reminiscent of what the plague would be. Look at this. Black nodules. Swollen lymph nodes. There's the drinking game. Take a shot, preferably of tequila, every time someone says the word nodule. Nodules. Gillian Anderson really likes saying the word nodule. Nodules. It appears a lot in this episode. Nodules. You will get shit-faced. Just don't drink the worm for reasons that will become very obvious. Uh, it's also a word I spelt wrong every single time when I was writing my notes this morning. I got borderline the right letters, just not always in the right order. You were like Eric Morecambe playing piano. You were playing all the right notes, just not necessarily in the right order. That is essentially what I was doing. And then it was just going through afterwards. Right click, fix that. Right click, fix that. Um... But yeah, like we we basically like find that there's there's more to this dog than meets the eye. It's not just the black nodules. Take a shot. Nodules. There's also something crawling around inside it, and we then cut to a bear who is trying to sort his arm out, and suddenly he feels very very queasy, and he sees that he has also got the black mark. Spooky. It's a perfectly wonderfully concise ten minutes worth of television. You have your cold open at the start. We find out why Mulder and Scully are going there. We meet the characters. We arrive at the place. We find out what's wrong. There you go. Like, that is a wonderfully tight 10 minutes. My wife and I recently were watching Con Air, which is a fantastic movie. Legit one of the best movies of the 90s. That is a movie that is not there to fuck around. Like, that is a movie that spent, like, its opening 10, 15 minutes are just about as getting him on, getting him on that fucking plane as quickly as fucking possible. And it is, but it also crams a hell of a lot of character stuff and basically like, and here are 25 characters before we get onto this plane. But it's beautiful, um, I'm trying to think what the word I'm after is here. It's um, economic filmmaking. And when you're in a TV uh, show like this, you also need economic writing. And this is good economic writing. Also, just as a note, worms and shit crawling under the skin... there's very few things that still squick me out and that one sticks with me because it creeped me out when i first saw this episode there's also an episode of star trek the next generation that has a similar kind of creepy crawl is under the skin thing although that one is very much definitely we are taking over the brain and we're Mm. going to overthrow the federation kind of shit and in fact the wrath of khan khan uses the earworms to control people it's just like stop sticking crap in my ear or under my skin no thank you no no that's just that's not that's not a good thing that that's bad from the autopsies it's clear these men killed one another there are contusions around the throat areas of three men evidence of strangulation Richter and Campbell killed themselves I also found tissue damage due to fever did any of them have the black spots the dog has? No. 
None of them had the black nodules. So, uh, those spots didn't have anything to do with, uh, those guys killing each other, right? I wouldn't rule it out. Just re-examine the dog. Nodules are gone. What could that mean? Well, it could mean that the spots are a symptom of some disease at an early stage. Now that we have established where they are and established what the problem is, now we need to create some jeopardy around this situation. And we do this by them, you know, saying, hey, you know, these two guys, they killed each other. Like, they weren't killed by what these other guys were killed by. These two definitely died from self-inflicted wounds. And they don't have the black nodules on them anymore. Take a shot. Nodules. But Bear, because he has now got those black nodules, take a shot. Nodules. Wants to get out of there as quickly as possible and is already sort of like in this aggressive demeanor. Yeah, it doesn't help when Hodge comes in and is just like, hey, that dog nodules gone nodules yeah so maybe just an early symptom before the disease or or plague or whatever it is gets really into it and bears like check please <laughs> gonna go now and also we get some lovely science chat from murphy and Mulder, where they're just like um you know it's like hey here's some photos of some ice wait what was the depth they were uh, drilling down into huh they must have gone further that means they were drilling into a meteor crater i'm sure that won't play any part of what's going on here the numbers indicate the topography to be concave. Looks like they were drilling inside a meteor crater. No, you're wrong. It's impossible. I analyzed two samples. What did you find? There seems to be a presence of ammonium hydroxide in Richter's blood sample. It's not possible. Ammonia would vaporize at human body temperature. I checked all the air filtration systems. I found no evidence of any such toxins. I have. In the ice. Do you think that meteor was somewhere near where the UFO crashed? No, you've done that thing again, where oh. you think this is like a bit like the thing. And I, I mean, the, the writers told us it's not like the thing. Yeah, Mulder also finds an entirely normal and completely sane piece of paper at this point that just repeatedly has the sentence, we are not who we are. It's totally, you know that the first Resident Evil game where you read that guy's diary as he slowly becomes the zombie? Itchy tasty yeah, exactly yeah that is essentially what he finds i could almost hear like you pressing left and hearing that sound effect as you go to the next page meanwhile dr hodge and scully are having a bit of a to-do yeah they're not absolutely happy about sort of the way that each other's are sort of like doing their work particularly because scully has said that uh he had ammonia samples in there she had a much more sort of complex word for it but essentially boils down to ammonia um and hodge was like that's not possible it would have vaporized him and doctor was like there's no way those toxins could have got into him bada bada ba and then murphy pops in is like ah unless some of it was in the ice because there are high levels of ammonia to water and Mulder, spooky Mulder, pumps in with just like well nothing from earth could have done that it must be a foreign entity cue dramatic mark snow sting <laughs> there's a reason why you two are here meanwhile bear definitely not freaking out definitely not infected has kind of like slipped in at the back of the room and is just watching all this unfold and trying not to freak out he's not doing a very good job of not freaking out it's really good casting on him as a character because he's like he's ideal for this sort of character to you know give you that line of just like there's only one son of a bitch that's crazy enough to doodly dee and then also be like the i don't like being here i want to get the fuck out because something bad has happened to me and i want to leave i found a high ratio of ammonia to water in the ice core the earth's atmosphere could never produce such levels not even a quarter of a million years ago look in the scope unless a foreign object was introduced into that environment 
Tell me that's not a foreign object. Ooh. That same thing is in Richter's blood. What if that single-celled organism is the larval stage of a larger animal? That's kind of a leap, don't you think? The evidence is there. Maybe the organism in the ice core somehow got into the men. Come on, nothing can survive in sub-zero temperatures for a quarter of a million years. Unless that's how it lives. Because while he's freaking out, Scully, De Silva, Mulder, Hodge, they're all having a big to-do over a microscope. They're looking at microbes of this potential creature that could have survived in the ice, and Mulder's like, hey, could have survived for a quarter of a million years, and the others are like, nah, you're being spooky, spooky Mulder. That yeah. sounds like something from a horror film, a particular horror film. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm doing it again. You've done that thing again. No, you're thinking of that book. Um, no, there's... there's um, I'll wait for the film. <laughs> the dialogue here essentially is just like, here's a weird thing. That that's that kind of happened. Mulder pipes in was like, unless it's an X-Files, and they'd be like, don't be silly. They basically have that conversation twice over because it's just like, um, there's no way of ammonia, but it could be this. And later on, it's just like, there's no way it would have survived unless that's how it survives. Uh, and like so basically yeah that's what Mulder is here to do to be like but what if it is an X-File though but what if Aliens my sister though exactly yeah that, that, that Mulder's character series one he appears at a place and be like ah but what if it's Aliens I mean technically it is he's always right apart from when he isn't apart from when he isn't but most of the time he's usually right Look it, I don't see why you're squabbling over some bug you said it yourself Scully your autopsy found those men killed each other that's it. Now I say, let's just get the hell out of here. I agree. Can have the bodies sent to a facility where they can make a definitive diagnosis in the event that something was missed, Agent Scully. If those bodies are infected with an unknown organism, we can't take them back. We can't go back without proper quarantine procedures. We can't risk bringing back the next plague. Let's say you're right. They came down with something. We haven't. And I ain't waiting around until we do. While they're squabbling, Bear fails to hold any of his shit together anymore and just goes, look, these guys killed each other. Fuck that bug. Don't want anything to do with that. I want to leave. And that's when Mulder amazingly decides to go buy the book and goes, uh, yo, quarantine. We need to have quarantine around here. We can't take back the next plague. We need to be a bit more careful about this sort of thing. They start like having a go at each other and things like that because De Silva's like, the dog bit Bear and Bear's like, well, he bit Mulder too. And I just wrote in my notes here, uh-oh, it's already begun then. Well, they've only got 44 minutes, you know. They've got to they pick this, they got to pick the pace up a bit. They haven't got time to sit around and play fucking chess against a computer. Like, they need to be moving this shit along. Your move, King to Rook One. My move, Rook to Knight Six. Checkmate. Checkmate. Bitch. Don't even start up the computer chest, just drink the scotch and get the fuck on with it. And Scully takes the very scientific and sensible approach of going, well, we need to conduct a medical test to determine whether anyone amongst us is infected. And Bear, for obvious reasons, is like, no, I'm going to fly home. And he storms off to pack up his belongings, at which point everyone else does the sensible thing and votes to force Bear to take the test. 
which they do with a very, very simple persuasion method of a gun. Yeah, I mean, we, we say that all the doctors, they take the vote about, like, you know, do, do we stop Bear and do this test? And Mulder and Scully put their hands up, and Murphy is the, you know, the other vote that gets the swings. Hodge and DeSilva don't. They are bad doctors. They should not be here if they are willing to take back this plague. I mean, why do you think they got sent to the Antarctic? They are also disposable. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, makes sense, I guess. They convince him to do it because they have a gun pointed at him. And he's like, okay, cool, I'll take the test. And he picks up the jar. And essentially, without saying it, goes, psych! And smashes the jar over Mulder's head. But Scully, like the badass that he is, tackles that dude to the floor. I mean, at least he hit Mulder with the empty jar rather than after he'd taken a dump in it. Yeah, but, yeah. but as he says, doesn't drop his cargo for anyone. They they knock him down and they realise that he has also got... Ash, don't worry about this. He's got the things crawling under his skin by his neck and literally just cut it out of him. They get this parasite, this worm, which starts squirting black stuff everywhere and is wiggling around and desperately trying to get away. And this was actually a very clever moment for the production team because this sequence or the sequence of the worm being removed, lasts about four seconds. The original version of it was about three times that length, and much longer than they needed it to be. And the reason they did that is because they knew the sensors would go for it, so they shot three times the length, so they produced and edited three times the length they needed, knowing that actually they'd probably get away with the four seconds they wanted. Yeah, a few films have done that over the years as well. I think Friday the 13th, uh, to bring that franchise back up again, worked that out probably a bit too late but they did eventually work that out uh adam marcus in particular on um, the final nightmare which is like oh, i just shot loads of stuff handed to the sensors knowing that they were going to cut it back but that's fine because i basically got to keep all the stuff that i wanted then sadly Mulder learns because he goes off to radio what he learns is that there's no evacuation that can come and get them uh until the following day and if they don't leave in an hour they're not going to be leaving for a while uh, and they can't really go anywhere because the one pilot that they had, they've just cut a hole in his neck and now he's dead. But positive news, Luke. The worm is still alive. Experiment ahoy. The worm was actually done for the show in one of three ways. Uh, prosthetic, kind of like a creature effect, uh, CGI and mealworm because whilst... The rubber prop and the CGI looks a bit different. When it's usually being carried around in forceps and stuff, it's just a mealworm. It, it looks like a mealworm. If you've ever kept a reptile or similar, you will recognise a mealworm because reptiles love mealworms. It, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the faculty, which essentially is, you know, it's a very similar thing of just like these sort of like worm type creatures that, um, that they carry around on forceps a couple of times. Faculty, by the way, is a fucking great film. It is a very, very good movie. One thing of note is that Xander Berkeley spent a lot of the time between shots bartassing around on set with the practical props, basically pretending to put them into and pull them out of people's ears with a, on a pair of forceps. Well, that, that, that's, just him, that's just him getting ready for his big scene at the end. It is indeed, you know, method. He's gone full method. Exactly, yeah. Well, it's similar to a tapeworm in that it has a skull legs with suckers and hooks. So then it's familiar. Something you can deal with. What? No. Very different from any organism, at least, that I know of. Have you figured out how it's transmitted yet? Mm, exchange of fluids, touch, air, all of the above, I don't know. 
All the other dead bodies had the creature. This is the only one that's still alive. Paul, the spine? No. It appears they were in the hypothalamus gland deep in the brain. Hypothalamus. So, we have had our first two bits of act there. We've we've arrived at the place. We have now found out the peril of the place. Now we need to find out a bit of the science of the place. So, we see some, like, you know, some pretty decent CGI of this creature that's in the jar. You know, I'm just like, we've never seen anything like that. Here is how the thing is transmitted. And they basically do all of the sciencey stuff and what the thing does if it gets inside of you. I didn't mean to say the thing there because obviously this is not a reference to the film. No, definitely not. You know, now you're doing it, Luke. The writers were very specific. I this know, is not a ripoff of the thing. It, it sometimes it just happens. So yeah, basically, if it gets inside of you, you act aggressively, and uh, it, but it doesn't want to kill the host. It basically wants it to kill other people, and but they don't really have concrete proof of that. And someone goes like. I mean, we do have five dead bodies. Well, that's actually that's a pretty good damning bit of evidence, that. They find dead worms in all of those bodies, which either backs up the science or means they really like tequila. Could go either way, that one. And now, unfortunately, we're in a position where it's late at night and people kind of need to sleep, but also people don't really want to sleep because they're a bit scared, they don't really know what's going on. Mulder thinks it's an alien. Scully, the rational one, is more worried about what will happen if the parasite gets out into New York City because that could, like, kill them all in a couple of days. But Mulder was just like, yeah, I know, but, like, my sister and that. I want to, like, find out more about the alien. And I do love that Mulder is the one to bring up, like, guys, it's late. We should all get some sleep because we're all wired and, and kind of, like, hypersensitive, which is actually the stupidest thing you can do when people are wired and hypersensitive is tell people they're wired and hypersensitive. It's like telling a person who's shouting to stop shouting. Guess what? It won't stop them shouting. We also have this other line that comes up here that's not quite it's not really referenced a lot throughout the rest of the episode but it's basically just there to let you know you know why tensions are also on the up as opposed to just being the situation they're in is that while outside it's absolutely freezing the heater on the inside is busted so it's only blowing out hot air which means it's sweltering on the inside and that is only going to make matters worse that's just going to exacerbate the issue it also saves on the fact that they don't have to worry about making breath hang in the air, something they'd already failed to do a couple of times when they're meant to be outside in the cold. It ramps up the tension and, you know, you've, you've been on the tube in summer. Oh, it's the worst. I had to get the fucking central line in summer as well. That is gross. And you're just, you're sticky and you're clammy and people are bumping into you and you just get irritated and you're trying to find that gap in the window so when you're going through a tunnel you get a little bit of airflow it's not as bad now because we've got air conditioning on trains but oh god the sticky not on the, not on the fucking central line though jesus christ because i remember when it was summer a couple of years ago when it was like super duper hot and someone messaged like you know the the, the tube and that on social media to be like the central line is disgusting and the trains are all broken and the centrally and you know the, we don't get any aircon on this whatsoever and the person replied being like, we do have plans to improve the central line trains that will be enacted before uh, summer 2028. And I was like, oh, good. Well, at least it'll be before summer 2028. Heaven forbid it was done by the fucking winter of 2028. I guess we could hold on until then. It's only six years away, man. It's fine. I don't live there anymore. I'm, fi I'm fine with it now. I actually can't remember the last time I took the central line. For some reason, I just seem to have avoided it for most of the past year. Oh, wait, I know why. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. You hear what they're arguing about? Uh, they're probably discussing their little government secrets. You think they knew it was up here before we arrived? Sure of it. 
environmental hazard. You know, Bear's infected blood did get on Scully. It also got on you. How do you know it can't be contained? It can. By extermination, we should take those bodies, worms and all, outside and incinerate them. Something going on we should know about? Agent Scully, all right? Yes, I'm fine. It's nothing. While Mulder and Scully are doing FBI shit because, you know, that's what they're there to do. Well, I mean, there is a case when people are starting to worry. Very much, and justifiably so, but they're not worrying about what they should be worrying about because DeSilver and Hodge are wondering what they're up to and Hodge is convinced that, hey, they're the FBI. They know the score. They know they know more than they're letting on. They're, they're feds. They're agents of Uncle Sam. This is probably a government experiment gone awry or something. Basically, Hodge does not trust the government. He certainly doesn't trust Mulder and Scully. And the temperature, plus possible worm infection, means that, uh, yeah, he wants to confront them. And, you know, as, as hot as it already is, Scully's then talking about burning the bodies. Which, again, sort of sounds like it's from the thing, but... I don't think that can be the case. You know, basically, everyone's just getting a little bit ratty uh, around everyone, and Mulder's like, no, 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 we should just sleep rather than turn on each other. And the decision is made that they should investigate each other. They should all do, uh, check for the black nodules, take a drink, before they all do go off into their separate bunks. And, predictably at this point, everything seems fine. So they should all be able to get a good night's kip loot. Well, they should, yeah. I mean, it, it did get pretty sexy when they were all getting undressed and stuff and the ladies were, like, touching each other and whatnot. Fox cable television. Um, but everything now should be A-OK. Except Scully enters her room and immediately heaves a desk against the door. Murphy starts listening to one of his taped football games. I like Hodge writing down everyone's name and just basically like Mulder, prick, Scully, definitely evil, Murphy, don't trust him either. And De Silva is lying in bed and Mulder is sitting on his bed. So actually, De Silva and Mulder are the only two kind of behaving somewhat normally, although Mulder has a gun. Well, I was going to say, like, knowing the, the reveal that we get at the end of the episode, De Silva crying here is quite a good, like, Red herring, I suppose you could say is the word, because she is just laying there crying. She could be just crying sort of out of stress. But I think you could probably read that crying in sort of like, you know, once you've worked that, once you find out what the, the reveal of the end is, is that she realizes that something bad has happened to her in the same way that uh, Bear knew that something was bad and something was up when he realized that he had the black nodules take a drink. Nodules. I can't drink anymore, Luke. <laughs> yeah. But then Mulder here... Is just decided, he wakes up and thinks like, I'm going to make myself look guilty as fuck. I'm going to walk out with a gun and I'm going to find a dead body and then just make myself look like I killed that dead body. I mean, he does hear a door open and footsteps. So he goes to investigate. He could have left the gun behind. You know, having the gun definitely does, doesn't help. But he finds a fridge with blood dripping out of it. I've seen that somewhere before. Is it Scream? Yeah, Skeet Ulrich uh, must have, like, uh, found out when he was going to get some soda or something. That, that's yeah. That's got to be it. It's got to be it. Definitely not another movie. Nope. Uh, but Mulder opens the fridge and Murphy falls out. Yeah. Very incriminating. Not a good look. Oh, it's really not a good look, is it? Because what? <laughs> because Murphy falls to the floor, dead as a doornail, and Mulder's over him being like, oh, no, he's dead. And then Scully, Hodge, and DeSilva walk in and be like, what are you doing? like oh fuck it weren't me it sure as fuck looks like it was you murphy's dead 
You killed him. I found him like this. I heard one of the doors close. I came out to check it out. It's one of you. He's lying. You could have done it and not even known. No, he said he didn't do it. I don't have any of the symptoms. You checked him yourself, Hodge. No, six hours ago. It was ago. one of you. Stop it! Stop it! Shut up! Top tip, when you discover a dead body like that, the first thing you should do is scream at the top of your voice, holy shit, I've just found a dead body, because whilst it doesn't completely absolve you of suspicion, it is much better than being found silently stood over a body with a cut throat. Shit escalates quickly to the point where Mulder and Scully are pointing guns at each other, never mind anyone else. There's also a really good line here that is, again, sort of economical writing to explain why Scully didn't see anything on De Silva when they were checking each other out earlier on. Spoilers, by the way, it's De Silva's the one who's got the, who's got the parasites. Sorry for the spoilers. And we get the line here to kind of like explain that away because you could watch this episode and be like, huh, but why didn't Scully see it when they were checking each other out? And it's because, like, you know, Scully says to uh, Hodge, you checked him out. He was fine. And he goes, yeah, but that was six hours ago. Just that one little line there can explain away, ah, that's why we didn't find anything on De Silva when we saw her earlier. One thing I do like in this episode, and it's something I think The X-Files was quite good at, they don't arrive at a situation, make one scientific examination, autopsy or whatever, and go, well, now we know everything. They get shit wrong a lot. Hmm. I prefer it that way. It, it, like in cases like this, it's like, oh, okay, black nodules, but what if not? Yeah. What if time scale? What if early symptom? What if doesn't show up on everyone? Does it, some people it only shows up on, I don't know, their elbows or something. You know, it, there are different variables that they openly admit they have not been able to account for. As far as I'm concerned, you're all infected. Hodge is right. We ought to lock them up. Mulder. Scully, get that gun off me. Mulder, you have to understand. Put it down. You put it down first. Scully. For God's sakes, it's me. Mulder, you may not be who you are. And Mulder does a fantastic job here of making himself look as innocent as possible by waving his gun around like a manman and saying, maybe you're all infected. Thankfully, no one gets shot. The question of whether they're still infected stands and Mulder takes the Brimley route. Oh, wait, no, sorry. No, no it's not yep, the thing. Different, different thing. Now you're thinking of a different Wilfred Brimley movie. A cocoon, obviously. Yes, obviously, yeah. Because Mulder goes, okay, lock me in a room, put yourself at ease, probably put me at ease as well because one of you guys is like, fucking killer yeah i mean yeah. Te- technically i am a killer by being an fbi agent i'm fairly certain i've killed someone in my career at this point but but you're 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 an, an illegal killer there we go yeah and he's got that great line that he says to scully where she puts him into then he's like yeah i'm gonna be pretty confident in here because i'm safer in here than you are out there it's a chilling little line to take us into our final act but remember scully we're partners <laughs> doing you know what i was doing you know i can't help thinking agent scully you're the only one with a gun if you get infected we don't stand a chance do we scully having locked Mulder away goes back into the main lab and despite having found a dead body both de silva and hodge are now asleep and scully and i can't blame her for this she's like i'll just have a little bit of a looky-loo i'll just have a bit of a bit of a poke around and and have a look at de silva's neck nope no reason 
but Hodge catches her doing that, and he's just like, you know, we shouldn't turn against each other if uh, you know if Mulder is infected. It's not his fault. Um, and they kind of like start to, you know, put some other ideas out there, like having this thing causes permanent psychosis and things like that. And you know, Hodge is just like, we ain't, we're not taking him back whatsoever. Like he is not getting on any sort of plane that comes here, which is probably the right call if you think he's infected. And Scully, I mean, was it Hippocratic Oath? I guess because she is a doctor. She's like, no, I mean, okay, I was pointing a gun at him five, ten minutes ago, but we must help him. You know, it's it's our duty to help him. And De Silva agrees. Well, yeah, I mean, and again, once you know the reason, you know, she's the one, she does want to go. Kind of like how, I mean, we can't really make much reference to the thing because it's not based on this, but like the thing does want to get out of you know, the Arctic and go and explore other places. Yeah, I mean, it's been there a quarter of a million years and it's only had some worms to talk to. But as we find out here, these worms don't like each other. Hodge. What? Come take a look at this. The larvae from two different worms killed each other. An individual worm will not tolerate another invading its host. It does to the invader what it did to humans. It makes them kill. It doesn't make any sense for a species to kill its own. It needs another to procreate. Worms are hermaphroditic. It can reproduce itself. Look at the evidence in the microscope. This thing does not like company. Like if you, because they have this experiment when Hodge and De Silva are like looking to put infected blood into non-infected blood and what happens. And what De Silva accidentally does is put infected blood into infected blood, which Hodges is just like, you dick, what'd you do that for? And when Scully goes to see what happens, she finds that the two sort of larvae forms of this creature kill each other. Like, the, you can't have two parasites in one host. It's kind of like Millwall fans. Yes, I, I mean, I have heard people say that before, that Millwall fans are a parasite. You don't put them next to each other, you have to stagger them. If there were any Millwall fans actually listening, I apologise, but also you know what you signed up for when you started supporting that team. And the only way to kill it is to kill the host. So this is like, a, you know, this is really, she puts the two like like containers of the worms next to each other. And this is where the CGI is not quite as good as it was earlier as they sort of try and like fight against each other. It's all right for like 93 television and that, and in some ways holds up better than a lot of like Hollywood CGI from the early 2000s does. I think it's because there's only really, well, two elements that are CGI. The containers are really there, the water is really there, the set is really there. It's just worms. Yeah. But they have a theory, they have a hypothesis. Now they just need to test it. If only they had a test subject. Wasn't there a dog here earlier? Oh, you mean the dog that's been in the base since the cold, cold open? That's right, yeah. That dog is still around, the one that killed Bear effectively led to bear's death let's be honest they uh, try this they put the second worm into the dog and the dog sort of like you know moves around a little bit and it shifts and it whimpers and this and the other they put it in its ear <laughs> and then it gets up and it's all right and i like this uh, afterwards hodge just walks in cleaning up his hands it's like he shit him out they passed him in his stool I mean, dog shitting worms, it does happen quite a bit, but these are very specific worms. But I actually like this resolution because the dog doesn't die. It doesn't split apart into a many tentacled... No, sorry, other film. The dog becomes a good boy again. And also, the dad of Duchovny's dog, Blue. So there we go. There you go. But so now we've... You know, if Mulder is infected, 
we now do have uh, an antidote for him. Problem is, is that Mulder doesn't think he's infected, or at least, you know, Mulder knows he's not infected. The kind of like the answer they've got is just like, well, what we could do is not give you one, or you know, we'll give you one to come back the other one. But if there isn't one in there, we've just given you one, and that's not that's not a great solution. So Mulder and Scully, like you know, they ask Scully, investigate me. She does, and she sees that he's not infected. He checks her and finds out she's not infected either. The problem is that they've done this not in the view of Hodge and De Silva. So then Scully walks out of the containment and just goes, "Yeah, he's fine." looking dodgy as fuck in all you know in all honesty and unsurprisingly Hodge and De Silva do not trust her of course they don't she looks sus as fuck <laughs> they lock her in the holding area and decide that if she's not going to give Mulder one they're going to give Mulder one in fairness Scully does eventually give Mulder one but that's not for another good few seasons nodules however just before De Silva is gonna drop the worm into Mulder Hodge sees the movement on her neck. I love that it came via Hodge and not via Scully or not yeah. via Mulder, that the realisation came from one of our guest characters as opposed to one of our leads. And it needs to be Hodge as well because he's the one who has never trusted Mulder and Scully from like moment one of them doing this mission. The only person he's ever trusted is De Silva. So it needs to be him to see that it is the only character that he's trusted is the one that's infected for him to like for the the ball to the penny to really drop for him. So I, I think it's a really really nice bit of writing that. And realizing she's been outed or realizing she's infected or some combination thereof, she has a ship fit. I think that's the best way to describe this behavior. She oh, has yeah. a ship fit. She screams a lot. She grabs a gun. Starts pulling computers off of walls and stuff. She probably takes out that chess computer as well. I mean, it was broken anyway. It's got loads of uh, bourbon inside. Uh, it. No. no. That's a different film. Sorry. Yep. Different, you're, yep. different, you're right. different thing entirely. Yeah. But Mulder overpowers her. Him and Scully wrestle to silver to the ground. And Hodge is the one that saves the day by introducing the parasite into her body. She convulses and then relaxes and the infection is over. Yeah, Scully says the line that Richter did at the start of this, which is that this stops right here, which is a lovely, lovely little bit of, you know, tying up all of those loose ends. I mean, Mulder wants to go back. Like, it's the first thing that Mulder says. Like, they kind of, you know, they're outside of the quarantine. They both had their checks. They're all diddly, you know, they're all fine, absolutely. And then Mulder's just like, I want to go back. I want to do more experimenting up there. And that's when Hodge is like, but you're a G-man. You should know this already. The military or the CDC, they bombed the shit out of the place. And they torched it because, of course, they did. Oh, curse you trying to hide away your X-Files. It's still there, Scully. 200,000 years down in the ice. Leave it there. It is worth saying that this scene, which is meant to be at Doolittle Airfield in Nome, Alaska, was actually filmed at the Delta Air Park at the end of September, where it was very sunny, very warm, and everyone had to pretend they were cold and wear winter clothing. Acting. But despite the firebombing, Mulder, he still believes the worms are buried in the ice. And Scully, yeah, she thinks that's where they should be left. Scully is right. She's the, she's the person who is very much right here. Because if there's one thing that I've... I'm not saying that the two are connected, but if there is one thing that I have learned from the thing, the most important thing in that was making sure that it did not get out of that base. 
There are no real scientific benefits to studying those worms. It's like in the alien movies when you get into the later ones where they're like, oh, we can study it and we can learn so much from them. It's like, like what? How to get a second arsehole bitten in yourself? These worms offer no real scientific benefit other than going, ooh, they're parasites, probably from another world. Yeah, do you hear that, Paul Reiser? You didn't need to experiment on them. You didn't need to learn anything, you big prick. He got his. <laughs> So that is the episode. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's. Just, I'm so glad that it won the poll. Uh, I did rewatch Chinga after this, and I had a a lot of fun with it. But this is a better episode, and I think it's quite clear why this won. And I'm very glad that it did, and it was really fun to chat through it with you as well. And as I said, like as someone who is, I don't know a lot about like the history and the the you know the the sort of the making of this show and sort of like what it went on to become. So I, I've, I learned a lot today. I'm like Stan and Kyle in an episode of South Park. You know, I learned something today. This is as good an introductory episode to the X-Files as pilot, as many of them. By being Monster of the Week, you don't need to know any of the mythology, which had already started to build at that point. It doesn't give the best introduction to Mulder and Scully, but it does give you a feel for the characters and how they approach situations differently. And yes, we've had fun with it over this episode. It is quite similar to The Thing, or Who Goes There, or The Thing from Another World, in setting and the feeling of paranoia and loss of identity. But it's not as gory, it's not as action-packed, there isn't pouring whiskey into a chess-playing computer, there isn't a greased Wilford Brimley running over the base. It takes the best bits of The Thing, the kind of the core elements beyond the gore, beyond the violence, beyond the death, and it turns it into something new. It turns it into something that for network television in 1993 is very disturbing, very unnerving, and very, very good. This episode, regardless of its influences, is one of the most highly regarded episodes of season one, and certainly was a high point, not only from an audience point of view, but when they were making this episode, the cast and crew went, oh, we're doing something good here. You can see that as well. This is one of the episodes that always really sticks out to me. And it's, you know, when we talked about like what episodes do we want to do, it was one of the, aside from Jing, it was the first one that popped in my head and be like, ah, oh, that'd be a really fun one to do. So yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense that this is held in, in such high regard. And it's a really, really good, not just a bottle episode, a monster of the week episode. It's for the fact that it is, you know, it's a cheap episode to make cheap in, in air quiz and Bucky O'Hare is, it looks great. And you don't feel like you're only ever on two sets. It still feels quite expansive for, for such a self-contained and such a contained um, story. Yeah, really, really enjoyed this. It's a great episode. I'm very happy it won the poll. I still wish we'd got to talk about Jose Chung's or X-Cops because they're weird. Mm. But much like our Press Gang episode, the best episode won. And you can always go check those ones out yourselves. Because, um, like, I mean, the one thing you can say about the X-Files, it's available in multiple places now. Because if you've got Amazon Prime, it's all up on there. If you've got Disney+, Plus, it's all up on there now as well. Um, and if you, are, if you are still into physical media, you can pick up the DVD box set of this. Dirt cheap. And if you want to spend a bit more, you can get the Blu-ray as well, which we get into the argument of 6943 has been converted. Some picture has been gained, some has been lost. I've watched most of the first three series via the HD transfers because they're also the ones on Amazon and Disney+. Plus. I think they look fine. 
Well, that is going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all so much for being Patreon backers. We absolutely love doing Under Consultation Extra for you guys. We'll be doing it again next month. We haven't got a theme for next month sorted out yet. Uh, I'm sure we'll think of one. There were so many possible themes, so many possibilities, because much like with the X-Files, Luke, the truth is out there.